I think 90% of our deal flow comes from the founders in our network. Founders talk. No offense to VCs, but I love spending time with founders who are creating new things, who are way smarter than I am, who are incredibly passionate about a new product. Don't charge money too early, because then that's all you think about, and you might lose sight of how to build an amazing product. I think that once you start getting a dollar of revenue, that that's the number one metric that your next round investor is going to look at. Developers have a tendency to try everything and then actually not pay for anything. We love to say, go find and build the developer love, but find budget elsewhere. Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Ed Sim, founding partner at Bold Start Ventures. We talk about how Ed has gone about building a community of founders and CIOs, the dangers of generating revenue too early in a startup's life cycle, and how Ed goes about diligencing early stage founders. As always, if you've got questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at vc at heavybit.com. Ed, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thanks for having me. You're in good company. You're the second guest that I've interviewed who's drinking a beer with me, and I appreciate that. Cheers. Guest number one was Tammy Camp. We talked about blockchain. I was in too deep. Blockchain is always an exciting and fun topic, for sure. You've been doing venture for a while now. How did you get into it? Yeah, I've been a VC since 1996 and out of New York, which is quite interesting in and of itself. I got into it because I was at JP Morgan mm-hmm. and I was helping build quantitative trading applications and we were using Excel spreadsheets. And frankly, I was like a data entry person having to enter all this data every day to make trades. And I started learning Visual Basic to try to automate my job away. Mm-hmm. And I had a big ass book that was, you know, like a thick as the yellow pages. Learned how to code and basically automated a lot of the routine stuff that we did. And while I was there, the portfolio manager said, Hey, why don't we turn this into a real time trading application? So I started grabbing data. I got had the Mosaic browser, yes, Mosaic before it was Netscape in 1995. Started grabbing data and said, this is absolutely amazing. And I thought I wanted to become a VC. What came next? You know, back in the day, it, it was venture capital was a very closed kind of group. And everyone that was a VC either went to Harvard or Stanford Business School, which I think today you'd probably be better off not having gone to business school and actually having done something. But back in the day, that was the mid-90s. Mm. That was the, the path. So I said, well. I guess I have to apply to these business schools. And I did. And I did not get into Harvard or Stanford, but I got into Wharton in Chicago. And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to figure out what to do next. And I saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal. And once again, I'm dating myself here because it, was an, it said, looking for a technology associate at a venture capital firm in New York. Mind you, in 1996, there was no venture capital hmm. uh, in New York, let alone technology kind of startups in New York. I faxed my resume in, don't laugh at me please, and within an hour they called me back and said, please come meet me. So that was the beginning. I ended up not going to business school. I worked at a small shop called Prospect Street Ventures, which in 1996 had money from the New York City government to turn it into a quote-unquote high-tech sector. That was about as technical as they wanted to be. And absolutely fascinating. I was there for two years, and then um, the challenge for me was investing only in New York companies, trying to create jobs around that. And that was a tough kind of proposition. Mm. And so I ended up going, I was going to go back to business school. I did get into Harvard Business School in 1998, and I became friends with a legendary investment banker on Wall Street. His name was Bob Lesson. 
And Bob was vice chairman of Morgan Stanley and Smith Barney. He ended up becoming one of the single biggest angels on the East Coast. I think he probably put about 15 million of his own money into startups between 96 and 98. And he came to me one day and said, Hey, I'd been tracking you for a while, would love to kind of start a new fund and want you to run it for me. And I was like, Okay, let's do this. So that was 1998. And we started a firm called Dawn Treader Ventures, named after the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is a fascinating book in and of itself. <laughs> so that was the beginning. So since 1998, I started Dawn Treader. And the idea, being in New York, was to bring a product or founder product oriented perspective to investing in startups versus a back in the New York days it was an Excel approach. People were always interested in looking at numbers, and we were more interested in looking at people and products and how we could shape and influence their growth and trajectory. And Bob, having been on Wall Street, had tons of corporate relationships, Fortune 500 relationships. And I feel like iteration number one in 1998 was uh, these companies trying to figure out how not to be Amazon. right? And <laughs> back in like 98, that was a different kind of perspective of how not to be Amazon, because you could say the same thing today from every aspect, right? whether it's a large Fortune 500 or whether it's a developer-led startup as well. And so that, that was a quite an interesting perspective, taking these internet companies back in the day, software companies, and bring them into Fortune 500s, trying to figure out how to marry the two together. Hmm. What prompted you to start Bolt Start? Well, in 2010, we just came off one of our biggest exits. I had been the initial uh, founding investor in a company called Green Plum. Hmm. And we had quite a ride. That was a 10-year ride. And we ended up selling that to EMC. And right around that time, a bunch of startups kept coming to me saying, hey, the power of the cloud is absolutely amazing, and everyone's doing consumer stuff, but you're an enterprise guy, let's figure out how we can take a little bit of capital, let's say a million or two million dollars, and create an enterprise business around that, leveraging that platform. So I started seeing a lot of my friends coming back after they had exits. I'd also sold GoToMeeting you know, four or five years before that, I was the first investor there, LivePerson, which is still a public company. And there was no capital for early enterprise and taking the risk. It was all consumer in 2010. And that's when I said, okay, why don't we go out and try to, try to start a fund around this? And we had no idea if there would be enough opportunity. It was still pretty early looking at that. I mean, people used to think it cost three to five million dollars to get an enterprise company off the ground with, with the amount of software you had to build. How much does it actually cost? Well, today it depends on how complicated, but you can do it from anywhere from you know a million dollars to three million dollars, depending on the complexity and meaning to get your first couple pilot customers. So, tell us a little bit more about Bold Start's thesis. You said early stage enterprise. What else defines how you invest? Yeah, so I'll go narrow. I think the one thing that's super confusing is the world has become stratified in the venture space. There's pre-seed, there's seed, there's post-seed. And my partner Elliot Durbin and I just said, let's just cut through the chase. We own a URL firstcheck.vc. And so basically the bottom line from our perspective is I think if you look at the last 20 companies we invested in, most of them are 10 slides and a tremendous idea. But the most important part for us is founder market fit. Mm. What have the founders done before from an engineering build perspective? How are they leveraging that knowledge and all those relationships to move forward? Mm-hmm. And how much value can we add? We, we say we help founders get from founder market fit to product market fit. We want to help them get their first three to four uh, large customers. And we have a very active CIO advisory board of 20 uh, CIOs, senior IT execs from the largest banks, insurance companies, ad agencies, who are constantly 
interested in vetting new technology. And so that's kind of our unique spin on things. So we had an earlier guest that talked about the importance of founder market fit. She's on the investment team at Maveron and she talked about Allbirds. She talked about how the founders, oh, I'm going to misquote her. I think one of them was a material science guy and one of them was a sports guy. Um, and together they were able to produce this awesome shoe because they brought all this collective domain expertise. What does founder market fit look like for enterprise tech? Uh, rule number one, we want to fund amazing product-driven engineers. Mm-hmm. We only invest in engineers. And reason being is just that I think you have to have an opinionated view of what you're building. And you also have to be able to believe in creating a mission-oriented business. Hmm. Right? Meaning that I have this wonderful, wonderful idea, I want to build a tremendous product, and I'm on a mission to get it out to market and actually change how people you know, work or do things. And I think from that perspective, a person like that will always weather the up and downs kind of in a startup. There's so much stuff that can happen that doesn't go well, and you've got to keep waking up every day and be focused on a, on a bigger vision than just kind of making money. What's a recent mission-oriented business that you funded? Well, I can say that one company that is uh, super interesting is a company called Catalytic up in Chicago. The founder actually had previously been CTO and co-founder of uh, Field Glass. And he went through a kind of an up and down run, and they ended up selling to SAP for over a billion dollars uh, a few years ago. And he came out of that experience and said, look, I want to actually take all this big company stuff and create a way for people to have a better workflow experience. How do I automate kind of routine business workflows? How do I create software that's super easy to use, that's intelligent, and that helps people do that? That could be anything from HR onboarding. Think about the HR onboarding process, how many different people and systems it may touch. How do I create a routine and process around that? How do I leverage modern technologies like Slack, and email, and SMS, and alert people about them taking too much time. How do I uh, alert them to go right into DocuSign with an API? So we think about it as connecting people and processes together. But he was on a mission to change kind of how uh, business is done, and to do it much faster using everything new. So that, that, that's exciting to us. I want to shift gears here a little bit. You know, I'm particularly excited about this interview because you and I play in the same space. And one of the things I admire a lot about you is how good you are at sourcing. It feels like all the cool dev tool companies are talking to Bold Start. What's the secret sauce here? How do you foster such great connections with these early stage dev tool companies? I think first is hanging out with guys like you. You, you, you see a ton of, ton of amazing companies, and we have one of our portfolio companies working with you, uh, Sneak, Sneak, S-N-Y-K.io. Check out their podcast. The Secure Developer. Guy Pajarni rocks. He's he's awesome. Actually, Guy's an interesting story because he's a second time founder that we backed. We backed him before when he started a company called Blaze and sold it to Akamai. He became one of the two CTOs at Akamai, and I kept calling him up every month and said, "Hey, Guy, when are you leaving? <laughs> what do you got in your mind?" And I don't know if Guy wants me to tell. He had three different ideas, and I said, "Guy, if you do idea number three, I have a check waiting for you," and that was sneak. Huh. And that's how we got going. Okay, so so one strategy is you're talking to interesting founders before they're even founders. Yes, that, that's a big piece of our strategy. And the other piece is that founders talk. No offense to VCs, but we were kind of joking earlier. I love spending time with founders who are creating new things, who are way smarter than I am, who are incredibly passionate about a new product. And I think 90% of our deal flow comes from the founders in our network. And I think part of it 
is based on a few different ideas. One is we genuinely love what we do. We feel like we're a startup ourselves. We're not a billion dollar fund. We're scrappy. We love working with founders. We have an opinionated view of the world. I think I told you that we have a thesis-driven perspective. So uh, I would love to hear from you, Peter. How many you know infrastructure seed guys do you know that want to actually lead and be the first check-in versus being the last check-in and waiting for you know customers and things like that? That's what we don't look for. How many people want to be the first check-in? I think the good ones tend to want to lead. Interesting. Yeah. Do you disagree? No, no. I, I think you have to have conviction and courage, and you have to have a view of the market. And the founder market fit piece is the most important piece. So our founders are our best value add for us. So by having seven or eight dev tool related companies, they just keep talking with their friends, and that's how we see great opportunities. And and I feel very fortunate to have you know we have a Slack channel called the Bold Start Family where everyone kind of participates in there and upvotes on Hacker News and you know things like that and. I think that's been a great uh, way for us to, to work with cool companies. What are some of the things you do to foster a sense of community among your founders? Well, I think during even the diligence process, we'll have companies and founders talk to, to the founders that we're actually potentially going to invest in. And some of them actually like to co-invest with us in certain opportunities as well. And so that's been a great, great source of, I guess, intelligence for us and a source of community building. Mm. The other thing we do is we host regular dinners, you know, every month or so uh, around themed topics. So we've done stuff like applied AI in the enterprise. Where we brought four of our kind of portfolio companies together. Those same companies we took on road trips to like uh, corporate companies like P and G uh, or the Bank of New York or, or Capital One, and and we're trying to understand the themes that these large corporate enterprises have and the pain points they have, and try to bring three or four companies together. So that's another opportunity for everyone to work. With one another, and then you know, I think that Slack channel that we have is very active. Founders are constantly sharing feedback with each other, tips on marketing, tips on working with developers, tips on getting their product out to open source. Which license do I use? Is it Apache Two or or BSD or something like that? Right, Berkeley. And so, it, it's it's been a wonderful opportunity for us to to learn and, and build that community. So, you're kind of talking about two communities here. You have this great community of founders talking to each other. And you have this other community of CTOs and CIOs and technical leaders at large companies that you're connecting to your founders. I'd love to hear more about that. How do you build a community of CIOs? Well, it's you can't just wake up and say you want to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my partner and I have been doing it for for quite a long time, and you know we basically have a ton of relationships, and we've gone to a few of our core kind of friends. Let's say like the senior VP of IT at TIA. And uh, really understood their pain points and asked them, who else do you have as friends that would be interested in working with startups? And and the big question I think for a company is, what is the definition of a startup to a large Fortune 500? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it a company that is three people or a company that has a hundred people and, and is cash flow positive? So I think it's important to kind of vet out what a startup means and how innovative they're willing to be. And what kind of a bet that that enterprise is willing to make uh, on your company? And so we spend a lot of time fostering community around that. We we just hosted, for example, three weeks ago a, a breakfast on enterprise peer innovation. So these folks never get a chance to connect with one another. What's your model? How do you bring new technologies in? What's the best way? Do you have a PL owner as part of it? Do you write checks as part of it? Do you have your own engineering staff that's outside of the core team? So by putting all these folks together, we're, we're adding value for them, connecting them, building bridges, 
And we just get to sit there as like a fly on the wall and understand who is willing to work with a startup today and which areas might take more time. A lot of really early companies that I talk to struggle to sell to large enterprises because there's so much sort of legal hassle, right? These large companies want to know that you have enough runway, that the technology is going to be around in a couple of years. Is this a problem you run into? I would say that every company is different. And we need to understand which companies are the ones that care about what's on your balance sheet because we mm-hmm. won't bring them in. Mm-hmm. And there's other ones who are more willing to work earlier. I think you and I chatted right before this. About 10 years ago, if I tried this, people would laugh at us because there was this tendency to have one throat to choke. And everyone thought buying IBM or Microsoft uh, or Cisco was the way to go. And people thought just very simplistically of best of breed software. And startups were the ones that were supposed to provide best of breed software. But it was very hard for them to get in because Cisco would just say, oh, we will give this to you for free. It might not be as good as what you have. Fast forward to today, I think that the pace of innovation is so rapid and the pace of software development is so rapid that the smarter, larger companies, if they don't innovate and they don't work with startups, they can't do it all by themselves. And so a lot of, a lot of these large corporates have outreach Opportunities. They have IT executives reaching out and working with startups. They have innovation groups, which I think can be a dirty word, right? Because a lot of times we say you don't get stuck in innovation, but there are some innovation groups that are amazing. And I'll say, like guys like Cap One, Capital One is such an efficient machine to work with startups. And there's others that aren't as good. So you can't generalize anything. It's, it's different based on based on which company it is. But but it's been a cool thing that's happened over the last ten years. What are some of the things you look for in your network of larger companies? I love uh, building a relationship with with folks and understanding their pain points. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what are the top three priorities you have? Like, what are you trying to do? And then thinking through which portfolio companies do we have that might match that, and then kind of quietly working them into the into the room or organizing a dinner around, let's say, DevOps or cloud native infrastructure, and getting everyone in a room together. And once again, as I said, 10 years ago it would be very hard to do, but it's getting easier and easier because people know that if they don't spend on uh, new technology, if they don't work with startups, that they're going to die. What are some of those common pain points? Are there any themes that have emerged over the last couple of years? Yeah, so I think we've, we have some opinionated views of the world. I think that we'll call one bucket cloud native infrastructure. And it's a theme that HeavyBit, I know, is pretty involved in as well. Uh, if you think about kind of the thirty thousand foot perspective, and you believe that every company is, and I'll use you know kind of buzzwords, is is a digital company, and that's what these Fortune five hundreds use, then they believe that they need to create their own software, they need to codify their own business processes, and they can't kind of buy off the shelf software. And there's been stats out there that says eighty five percent of software uh, deployed at corporations are going to be created by themselves. Hmm. And what does that mean? That means developers become really, really important in that whole food chain. And so we've been investing a lot, like Heavybit has, in developer-led companies. We love to say, go find and build the developer love, but find budget elsewhere. <laughs> and that's another topic altogether. But that's been a, a big theme: is how do I move from one monolithic architecture to a agile infrastructure, which means I'm using microservices. And where are the holes kind of around that, right? How do I put code into deployment faster? How do I secure my developer code like Sneak's doing, right? How do, like security DevOps. 
how do I manage that better? I mean, there's a whole bunch of problems that are being created as you actually do this replatforming of corporate America. And you know, when, when you have companies like Kroger, you know, who is a big grocery store, talking about their IT spend and, and going to a cloud-native infrastructure, that to me is quite fascinating. You would never think about that. So that's one. The other areas that we hear about uh, obviously are security. I mean, look at what's happening every day. You know, our approach to security has been rather than taking something that already exists, we've been always looking at new attack vectors. So outside of the fact that we did sneak a few years ago looking at the rise of developers and how they would have to build security into their pipeline without bothering kind of their day-to-day efficiency, we also invested in a company called Security Scorecard, which just announced their Series C today, that is helping large enterprises understand the risk from their third-party vendors. So if you believe in the, the world that you're only as secure as your least secure partner, then how do you actually understand the security posture of 5,000 or 10,000 vendors? It's impossible. You've got to take a data-driven, data science-driven approach to it, and that's what they started with three years ago, and now it's become a, a category. So we, we, we did the seed about three or four years ago. Sequoia did the A, which was kind of unheard of in New York. Google Ventures did the B. And then we just did the C round today. But so so that's been another area. And the final area is a buzzy word. <laughs> you talked about earlier is blockchain. And in New York, there's a lot of blockchain tourism. <laughs> that's people just piloting out software and not doing anything with it because their board says we got to do something crypto or blockchain. And that's kind of true. I, I still think that you know there's a lot of uh, BS out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we took an approach uh, by partnering with IBM. And we're creating a customer, we'll call it a customer growth lab or a customer experience lab on the Hyperledger fabric, which is an open source blockchain kind of protocol that's, I think, part of the Linux Foundation. And IBM is a big contributor to it. And what many people don't know is that they have 400 customers across the world um, using Hyperledger fabric in some way, shape, or form. I won't say they're on production. But I do know for a fact they've got some very large projects in production that could be ranging from supply chain opportunities to finance opportunities. And so we're partnering with them to understand the pain points and to bring startups closer to, to that whole platform. I want to come back to something you said earlier. You said, sell to developers but find budget elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> Where is the budget? It's super, super interesting, right? I always look at how Pivotal Cloud Foundry sells. I'm very close with them because Green Plum, which sold into EMC, spun back out as assets of Pivotal, um, Green Plum, and VMware. And two of my closest friends are now kind of senior executives over there. And I remember a few years ago, they took an approach saying that rather than sell infrastructure to infrastructure people, I'm going to go after the PL owner. Mm-hmm. And try to understand they have bigger budgets, they have bigger pains. And I'm trying to understand what their business problems are and just say, hey, in order to do that, you've got to have an agile infrastructure. And they took a lot of lumps trying to do that for a while. And eventually they kind of figured out that that sales motion. An example could be what if a bank, what if a board said, hey, bank, I want to create the omnichannel bank of the future? What the hell does that mean? Right. And so answer number one could be the retail branch as we have it today just should not exist. Why not have like 10 kiosks in that branch and put all the, the latest cool technology on it, biometric sensors, and have maybe one person sitting in there managing those 10 kiosks if, if someone really needs service? And if you think about that concept, 
that is perfect to put an agile infrastructure behind it, right? Because it's the same, it's just a different front end, but it should be the same back end as your mobile and also as your web. And the kiosk should be appended off of that. So that happened about three years ago, and, and you start with a new project typically, and then you roll it out to a much larger kind of play over time. So find kind of new development opportunities, wedge yourself in, because there's a massive pain for speed. You don't have to get caught up in legacy stuff. And once you prove out that one project works, then you get a second or third project. And budgets meaning, so that, that's a PL budget. Other budgets could be like Sneak is going after developers but getting a budget from security, chief security officers. And then I think the hard part is trying to get budget from VPs of engineering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that's always a challenging one. I would love to hear your perspective as well, what you're seeing. But Developers have a tendency to try everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then actually not pay for anything either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get a little bit more tactical here, because we're talking about founders that are engineers themselves and that have an easy time talking to other engineers. How do they then make the bridge from like I'm talking to an engineer, but I have to find someone else in the organization to sponsor this? Yeah, so I'll give you a great example. I view it as a bottom-up, top-down assault. <laughs> and I think about it as two different ways. I think about dev evangelism is different from enterprise marketing. Developer evangelism is what you absolutely necessarily need to have if you're a developer-led company. So that is where you always start, and that means Getting your blog posts out there, getting on Hacker News, speaking at conferences, you know, creating hackathons and doing all that—that's just a must-have. And you have to probably—it's usually the founder to start with, but then eventually you get someone to be an evangelist. But then what happens is, is that over time, if you've done that successfully, you start seeing larger companies reaching out to you and saying, "Hey, you know, how do I?" Get this from a developer to a team. I always look at the whole thing as get developer love, and then you go create teams, and then eventually you do orgs. Right? When you get to orgs, that's when you're kind of hitting the holy grail. You can see that trend in every amazing company, even like GitHub, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we always talk to our founders like developers, developers first, never get distracted. And then it's like, okay, now let's create some team functionality. So a manifold is another good example of that. That's a company that we funded. Its uh, uh, founder is, is Jevin McDonald. We backed him before he sold his company to Salesforce, and he's creating a, we'll call it a developer services marketplace. He wants to separate out the developer services that you bring into your organization from the underlying cloud provider like AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft. Hmm. And so he started out with an individual developer productivity play, and he just announced Teams. Mm-hmm. And eventually he can go to org. So how do you do that? You've got to build that grass up, bottoms up movement. You see that, let's say, a large bank is using this with 10 different people and they've expanded within the, the team from 1 to 10. And then you think about how do I get executive sponsorship? Do I go to the CIO, the CTO? And that's kind of where we can help. Mm. We can go to some of these large people and say, hey, uh, you know, what are your problems? Well, one problem I see at a lot of large companies is how do I consolidate all my code in one place? <laughs> So when you start knowing that that person is responsible for that, you're like, okay, how about this? What if you wanted to control the rogue developer services that are being brought into your organization? Would that be pretty cool? Yeah. Well, guess what? I have something that might help solve that problem. So, and then they start checking in with the developers, like, oh, ten or twelve of these people are already using it right now. So I, that's why I call bottom up and then top down, and you've got to have some understanding of how to do that together. I mean, it's probably hard to get more than like two k, three k. You know, per month, if it's just kind of bottom up, if you want to get some of the bigger budgets, eventually you're going to need 
that big IT pool spend that may not necessarily come from from developer expense, but it comes from the CTO's budget or the CIO's budget, where there's a massive, massive pain point. So on the enterprise marketing side, why I say dev dev evangelism is different from enterprise marketing, if you get into that sales motion, that's a time-consuming sales motion, first and foremost. Secondly, they'll ask you questions like, who are your competitors? Put that out on a chart for me. Well, Gardner says this, or Forrester says this. Well, guess what? A dev evangelist is not going to know anything about Gardner or Forrester, right? Sure. So, so just as, and then providing a one pager, like if you have, if you hire your first kind of two inside sales folks and they're calling, having that script, you know, what is that product marketing script that they can use? And once again, that's not what an evangelist is going to do. They're going to work with the developers. The enterprise marketing folks are going to help you figure out how to unlock bigger budgets. And how to explain that in a way that makes sense before you get down to that. So that's kind of why I see it as two different things. I want to continue talking about this journey from developers to teams to organizations. In particular, I want to talk about pricing, right? When you when you first go after developers, a really common strategy is to have a really affordable product, right? You're just aiming for usage. And when you go after orgs in order to sponsor a sales team, all of a sudden you need to put a really hefty price tag on things. How do you figure out what that number is? I think there's no right answer, first mm-hmm. and foremost. I think the best answer that, that I've kind of thought about is maybe not put pricing up to start with. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing is to make sure that people absolutely love what they do and it's an ind- indispensable part of their life. I think the second that you start getting $1 in, you're on that gravy train. Because let's face it, all the companies that are probably listening to this right now are thinking about how do I start working at, let's say, heavy bit, and then how do I get my next round of funding? And I think once you start taking a dollar in, then the only thing that the next round of VC is going to look at is how does that grow you know, every day, every week, every month. But if you don't take the dollar in, you're focused on just developer love and, and just making sure that people are using it and looking at the churn. And I think that's a metric that is product-driven. And I think that's something you can control a little bit better. And so my only perspective would be the second you put that pricing page up, then you're in that gravy train of generating revenue. And just be very careful that when you do it, you know that you have not just one customer waiting in the backstop, but 10 to 20 or 30 that are going to be willing to pay for that product. So, you know, that's a, that, that maybe doesn't answer your question, but I think about it that way. You're saying it's important to not start generating revenue too early. Exactly. That's such a, Venture specific piece of advice, sort of like optics of revenue. I'd, I'd love to break that down a little bit more. What's wrong with early revenue? I think that once you start getting a dollar of revenue, that that's the number one metric that your next round investor is going to look at. And I don't necessarily think that's the best metric to look at initially because you might get one or two paying large paying customers, but then if no one else is really using it or loves your product, it doesn't freaking matter what kind of money you're generating. However, if you have a uh, ton of developer usage or just rabid usage and expansion within, you know, from developers to teams, and you can see that kind of viral coefficient kicking in, you can see low churn rates. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like a million users, right? I mean, I think that I think the number varies and depends on what kind of developer-led product you have. I think that that is a more important metric that sets you up for longer term success. Mm. And so when it comes to pricing and all the other things, look, I can I can give you all the basics and you probably have better advice from the heavy bit content that you have here. You know, look at what your competitors are doing, look at what the substitute products are. Yeah, I can give you all that advice, but the reality of it is I can just tell you. And then if you go look at the large enterprises, look, at the end of the day you can throw out a big number. 
it's going to be a discount because they're going to be your first two or three paying customers, and you're going to want to extract a case study from them. There's a whole bunch of tricks and techniques you're going to want to have to grab. But the only reason I say don't charge money too early is because then you, that's all you think about, and you might lose sight of how to build an amazing product that your constituency is going to love. And I think it's more important to think about what is my evolution going to be about how do I extract budgets, which is how do I get individuals, how do I get teams, meaning that those individuals that I worked so hard to get onto my platform, sharing it with their other folks, right? Because then that reduces your cost of acquisition. And then from there, if I have one or two teams inside of a large company using it, how do I get an organization, an enterprise-wide opportunity around that? And Mm. that's a different story altogether. Earlier, you sort of alluded to the fact that Bold Start is a really product and team-driven venture fund. How important are metrics for you when you look at making an investment? I have to be honest with you that I'm looking at Fund 3 now. I think we have 18 investments. Many of them haven't even been announced yet because they're so early. Most of them are 10 to 15 slides. There's not even a single piece of code written or maybe just a little code written. And that's it. So it's founder market fit. These founders, we have to absolutely love them. They have to love us. They have to love our portfolio. They have to love how we do things. And you know, I was just with a founder right before this. I can't I can't say who. You know who it is. Pretty awesome founder. Uh, founders. Super early. Yes, yeah, super early. Right. I mean, when we invested, he had initial vision, and then two weeks later, he honed it, and then th- three weeks after that, it got honed a little bit more. And then I just got to see the demo today, four months later, of just an early, early prototype, and absolutely blown away. And that to me is one of the most. That's why I do this job. It is so exciting. To work with founders that have an amazing, amazing idea and it's a piece of paper. And you know they've built it before. I mean, this founders built some amazing, right? Built some amazing technical products before. And to see it, and actually I was at, at the keyboard mm-hmm. and I'm playing around with it. I was like, oh. <laughs> and then he saw my eyes light up when he had this API kind of piece coming in. And, I, and he's like, why that aha moment? And that to me was the most exciting part. That's what I love. So that's what we do. And, and so that doesn't mean it's pre seed or seed. I mean, these, some of these founders, I think about pre-seed is like raising 500k or something. And the problem I have with pre-seed, and I think it's great for some folks, is that not every founder should do pre-seed because pre-seed presupposes you have a seed round after that. That's, that means just it's more dilution. Pre-seed means there's a seed round and then there's an A round, right? So that's just another layer of dilution. If you're a founder and you can raise two to two and a half or three million right out of the gates, mm. why wouldn't you? Gives you more opportunity, more runway to kind of build, more flexibility. So that, that's kind of why you know I just say first check. Are you seeing a trend of larger checks happening earlier and earlier in a company's life cycle? I think that it depends on the founders. So, if knock on wood, I feel fortunate that we have some amazing founders in our portfolio. You know, we've done a couple of things that are non-developer-led, like a, a SaaS company called Customer with a K, where the two founders previously were the CTO and chief architect of Assistly, and that sold to Salesforce and became Desk.com. So, they clearly had a, that was their third customer support startup that they they just created, Customer. And they have a clear view of how the world's going to work. It's a very crowded space, but these founders are tremendous, and they had 15 slides, and uh, they, they're off to the races now. So we did the C, they did an A, and and they're they're signing up some of their first big customers. So you know that founder market fit once again is like okay, you're doing your third or fourth, and it doesn't mean that if it's two engineers that are young too, we're, we're happy to take a bet in those folks too. They just have to have had a track record of building something, you know, out of the gates. And understanding that cadence and having an opinionated view of what's next—that's that's what's really important. Bold Start's been around for seven years now. And I think you said you're on your third fund. Is that yep. right? What's changed in that time? How has the fund evolved? I would say that we started out with a million-dollar fund. I view ourselves almost like 
a startup in and of itself. So our seed round was a million dollar fund we started, and the proof that we had to measure was are there enough enterprise seed companies in 2010 where you can actually have a focused quote unquote VC around that? Wait, hold on, a million dollar fund, that's tiny. Absolutely. What size checks are you writing there? We wrote 10 $100,000 checks, and the highest pre money we paid was $6 million at the time. 2010. Yeah. Okay. So we had to prove out a thesis like, are there enough great enterprise startups? And how the hell are you doing out of New York? Like, are you guys insane? Like, you should be in the Valley doing this. We're yeah, in San Francisco. Ed. I know. And I was like, you know, I've always been a crazy guy. So, you know, I figured, why not? Let's, let's try this out. Fast forward 2012, I think we had three exits all in 2012. And it's not like we invest in companies looking to get an exit before they get their A round done. It just happened to kind of work out and, and they're pretty solid. And so we're like, okay, maybe, maybe we can actually create something out of this. So fund two was a, we closed on $10 million and we ended up closing about $16 million in fund two. That was 2013. And check sizes got a little bit bigger, let's say 250 to 350. And we're actually reserving for pro rata, which is a very important thing for early stage you know, seed kind of VCs, and you know, built out a pretty nice portfolio there, and then we raised fund three, first close in 2015, and second close last year of close to 50 million. And the biggest gap that we saw, and we've we've had a plan all along, was that a lot of people want to follow, but they don't want to lead. Mm. And so the fund three was all about leading and co-leading these seed rounds, and taking a we call it a high conviction. High concentration portfolio approach, meaning that we want to have 18 to 20 investments. And for every dollar we put to work, we want to reserve two, three, four dollars in the follow on and really stick with these companies through a period of time and, and be active with them. Take board seats, take board observer seats, and, and engage with them, right? Help them kind of get customer feedback, help them get their first pilots, you know, take them down to, to large corporations. So that, that's kind of been our evolution. And the other thing that's happened is that over time you build a reputation, right? I've been doing this for 20 years. My partner and I have only been doing this for seven together. And just the, the quality of founders that, that keep coming back. Uh, I mean, I think that's like our MPS score. I think we've backed seven founders that we've previously had backed before. And having founders round trip from fund one to fund two or fund three, that to us is kind of the most meaningful perspective that, that I can say in terms of. Why we love what we do. So, like Rahul from Superhuman, uh, we had backed his first company, Reported, that sold to LinkedIn. He's reinventing how people do email. We also have uh, Guy Pajarni, who we backed in Fund One uh, from Blaze to Akamai. And then he ended up being one of the two CTOs at Akamai. So, we, we got to lead, we we're fortunate enough to lead his Fund Three investment. Mm-hmm. You know, Jevin was from Fund One, sold his company to Salesforce. He's chairman of NPM, I think, still. And we led uh, the seed round or co led the seed round uh, of Manifold. So that to us is is what's the evolution, right? You know, when people keep coming back to you, then you know that you're doing, I think, something well. Twenty years is a long time to to be a VC. Yeah, you see the gray hair. <laughs> you look good, man. <laughs> you, you know what's funny? My son played football for a year. He was he was a hockey lacrosse player. Now he's a rower, but he played fo- football for a year. And his coach one day said, "Football is not a full contact sport; it's a collision sport." And I was joking with my partner Elliot when we started Bullstar. I said, "Startups are not a full contact sport; it's a collision sport. You wake up, you have an idea, you you, you run hundred miles an hour, and you hit a brick wall, and you fall flat on your face. 
get back up again, you sprint at the wall, you fall flat in your face. The next time, you sprint through it and you just break the wall down. And that's why we call it, it's a, it's a collision sport. It's a really, really hard thing to do. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for everybody. And seed is really not for everybody. You really have to kind of love what you're doing and love kind of the founders you're working with, love the technologies that you're bringing to market. So that's why I, I kind of think about it almost like you know, running through brick walls every day and, and trying to get, pick yourself up off the ground and, <laughs> and finding a way around it, over it, through it, I mean, however way you can do it. But that's, that's kind of what it takes. What are some of the things that have been hard for you? I would just say, you know, hard for me or hard for the founders. I just think that I'll give you a great example. Like, uh, we just funded a company that's in stealth mode. Loved the founder. We had a very particular view of the market that aligned with the founder's view. And he had three engineers he was waiting to hire and didn't want to lose them. So we're like, hey, you know what? We're going to lead a two and a half million dollar round now. I'll give you, we'll give you a million dollars now and we'll find the rest. I'm not worried about kind of waiting for all the money to come. Mm. And so the, you know, for the first three weeks, he was out just hiring the people, getting it all together, and then we introduced him to three or four folks. And like, well, how big's the market? How big's that? How big's this? Right. So yeah, it's definitely tough being lonely uh, out there, right? And then all of a sudden, you fast forward three weeks after that, he's oversubscribed. But you know, it's that kind of here you go because we didn't want him to wait. We 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 had belief in it. But You're then, a high conviction fund. Yeah, and then yeah. you know you have three of your you know buddies pass on it, and then all of a sudden you keep plowing away, and now he's oversubscribed, right? So so that that happens a lot, you know. And so you've got to have the faith in in the founders. You have to have faith in kind of yourself and faith in your process, whatever that might be. And there's less to look at. When you're looking at 15 slides, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about diligence on this podcast, and I think it's easy to have a really thorough diligence process when you have a ton of metrics and a large team and customers that can be references. What does diligence look like for a two-person company with a 10-slide deck? Well, I'll, I'll give you a great example. It's another company I can't name. It's out here. A very close friend of mine uh, from Storm Ventures had sent it over to me, and we were on a board together about 15 years. And he's like, "Hey, Ed, you know, weirdest thing is, I I, I love this founder. I didn't make a ton of money with them, but uh-huh. but I lo- I just feel like they're ready for their next big thing." And he's like, "I know that you looked at some companies in this space, and I'll, I'll be generic in the sense that think about when you build a product. There's very few products that are built where everything is kind of stored somewhere, meaning the software development process." That is completely digital end to end. Everything that someone does can be found and seen. And yet, people are spending tons of money building new software, but there's no visibility into how I'm kind of doing, right? Hmm. And so, this person had an opinionated view of I want to work with large companies and executives, helping them understand what their developers are doing. How much time is being spent on innovation versus maintenance? Well, what does that mean? That means you probably have to kind of go back into, into your um, GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever, mm. maybe go into Zendesk and look at kind of the customer support queries that are coming in. How do you tie together all the data from different pieces to get a really interesting view of maybe um, you know, what's innovation, what's maintenance? And if you think about the microservices aspect, now you have 50 different teams how do I make sure that they're on track all in time? So this person had an interesting view of that. So during the diligence process, we introduced him to three of our CIO advisors. Hmm. And during the process, actually one of them said, guess what? Let me send you my spreadsheet. Every week I have someone pulling out data for my 200 developers in three different locations, and I'm grabbing a lot of the similar data, but it's such a pain in the ass. And so I introduced uh, the founder to one of our advisors, and he said, "Okay, I'm willing to be your first pilot." 
uh, one of your first two pilots. Fast forward, you know, four months later. So that ended up being an oversubscribed round. We got some great diligence from a trusted friend who has actually rearchitected a number of. He was at Pfizer, Diageo, Pearson. Now he's at Shutterstock, CTO Shutterstock, and known him forever. Trust his opinion, and the fact that he just jumped right in and did that. And then we tested it out with two other people, and they're like, "Yep, I have the same problem. If he's ready." You know, let us know. We'd like to look at three, four, and five. So part of it was spending time with the founder. Obviously, he flew out to New York. We spent, you know, some good time together. I walked him through some of our advisors. I had him talk to some of our other founders, and uh, that's kind of how you do it, right? You know, how do you instrument and orchestrate, you know, new technologies and processes by working with some of our, you know, buyers and trying to figure out, you know, is this something you would ever use? And it doesn't always happen <laughs> that it signs up as a pilot, but that's that's our perspective, and that, that's why, by the way, people ask us. Why is almost half your portfolio out in the West Coast? And I felt like 20 years ago when I started as a VC trying to pitch this whole corporate angle, which I learned from my mentor, Bob Lesson, you know, by working with these large corporations, people didn't give a shit. Hmm. People out here were like, I only want to go out, this was the midnight, I only want to go out to New York when I'm signing up Goldman or Morgan to do my IPO. Other than that, I don't really give a crap. But if you're an enterprise investor and you're an enterprise company, eventually, you know, you want to get Companies that aren't tech companies as your customers, right? You want to get some. You want to get some feedback from what would it take? I'm not saying that you should go out and sell to an enterprise today, but let's say a year from now, if I want to, what does it take? What am I going to have to build? What are the features I'm going to have to? What does it take to be enterprise ready? I'll give a plug to Grant Millet Replicated, who you know. He's got EnterpriseReady.io, which helps you know SaaS companies. He's working with a lot of the probably heavy bit companies right now, helping them take their. Cloud-based products and bring it on-prem and make it secure, auditable, and everything else. But the point is, is that today, in today's day and age, I can convince easier a founder to say, "Hey, you should take a West Coast lead and a and an East Coast co-lead, where we can provide a different Rolodex for you." And it's been resonating a lot more over the last few years than it was 20 years ago for sure. And that's been a big piece of what what we've been doing is trying to find those folks who want that aspect, you know, kind of want that aspect. Ed. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Where can our listeners find you? Well, I can be hanging out kind of in New York. Uh, they, <laughs> Just, they can find they me. They can wander around the streets of Manhattan. Exactly. They can find. They can find me at. Uh, <laughs> they can find me at twitter.com. Uh, my my handle is Ed Sim, and uh, I have a blog uh, beyondvc.com, which. I haven't kind of kept up to date lately, but I started blogging in 2003, so I think there might be some gems uh, out there, and obviously at boldstart.vc. And who should be getting in touch with you? Well, you kind of heard the story from before. I love engineers who are building uh, amazing product and trying to do something that's you know revolutionary, right? Like two, three years, four years ahead of the curve. And for the heavy bit folks, I love developers, developer-led led platforms. The best way to find me, though, is by reaching out to some of our founders in the portfolio companies. If you know them, then that's an easier way for us to kind of get vetted and, and we'll put you at the top of the list and, and chat and hear everything about you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders. <laughs> <laughs>